You're listening to Catholic Chicago on WNDZ 750 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you programs about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference of Illinois, and thanks for joining us this morning on our interesting program on a beautiful day in Chicago in this month of June. Uh, we're getting there. Summer's underway, and uh, it's, it was a beautiful weekend, and uh, shapes up. To, it looks like it's shaping up to be a beautiful week. So uh, thanks for taking some time this morning. Listen to us um, on AM 750 AM. WNDZ. We have a very interesting program here this morning, and let me give you a, a kind of a rundown of uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Most of the topics reflect what's going on in the news right now. Obviously, there's a lot of attention on um, what's going on with race relations uh, as a uh, growth, outgrowth of the uh, uh, unfortunate events in Minneapolis uh, about a couple weeks ago. And it's interesting, just personally, driving downtown Chicago, seeing all the stores and the windows boarded up still and the remnants of what happened a couple weeks ago. But we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, some of the uh, underlying issues that led to that. Um, at the outset of the program. And then um, we're going to take a twist and we're going to talk about uh, international religious freedom. We're really lucky to have with us a professor from Notre Dame. He teaches political science. His name is Dan Pilpot. And he's going to talk to us about the executive order that President Trump signed a few weeks ago regarding religious freedom and the importance of that document and what's going on in the world. After that, uh, we're going to have a talk with uh, Bishop Ron Hicks. He's uh, one of the auxiliary bishops here in the Archdiocese of Chicago. He's the vicar general and um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the reopening of churches and uh, what's going on with that process and what led to the current situation that we're in and uh, hopefully some good news as we're seeing um, people return to church here in the archdiocese this past weekend and then finally at the end of the program we're going to talk to Pete Newburn he is the ecumenical officer out in the diocese of Joliet he's going to talk to us about an interesting program they had over the weekend it was a virtual rally for virtual rally. That's a tough word to say here at 8 o'clock on a Monday morning. Virtual rally for racial justice uh, hosted by the Diocese in Joliet. Bishop Pates was uh, responsible for that. He and other civic leaders. So Pete's going to come in and talk to us about that program they did. Um, so let's then just launch off in our program. And with us on the phone, we have uh, Daniel Brown. She is the Associate Director for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, USCCB's Ad Hoc Committee on Racism. Daniel, you with us? I am. It's nice to hear your voice this morning. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thank you. It's been a whole, what, three days? <laughs> Two days. <laughs> uh, Daniel and I and uh uh, the other Catholic conference directors were on a, uh, a, a Zoom call, one of our many Zoom calls we do. And uh, so we were talking on Friday, so we're talking on Monday. Well, let's not talk tomorrow, okay? We'll take a day off. <laughs> Daniel, uh, thanks for taking some time this morning to join us. Uh, you are um, in an interesting position these days as the associate director for the ad hoc committee uh, against racism. And and I, I want to talk about the document that's out there, but also I want to talk about maybe, you know, kind of what led to the creation of your position and, and, and how you came aboard, because I think it has some ties into Chicago. Sure, sure. Um, so, I mean, the document, first off, um, really was the brainchild of, of one of the uh, African-American bishops at the time. Um, who really said, you know, I think it's time for us to speak again, because previously um, the most recent document was uh, put out by the U.S. bishops in 1979. It was called Brothers and Sisters yeah. to Us. Um, and so we hadn't had anything up until that point, and um, in part informed by the clashes that were going on in Charlottesville, Virginia. You know, we had marches and 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 visual scenes of um, people t protesting with tiki torches and things like that, scenes that we hadn't seen since, mm -hmm. you know, really the 1950s and 60s. And so 
uh, the bishops uh, decided to to write again on the issue of racism, um, and that was back. <clears throat> pardon me, around um, twenty sixteen or seventeen that the whole process began. And I think what you're re- referencing is that um, the committee that was really charged with writing it was the Committee on Cultural Diversity, and at the time. Um, now Archbishop uh, Gustavo Sierra was the chair of that committee, and so it was that committee and that committee staff who uh, spearheaded the writing of the letter and completed the writing of the letter um, in in collaboration with the, the USCCB Standing Committee on African American Affairs. So it was the you know the the major committee that Archbishop Gustavo uh, chaired, and then the subcommittee on African American Affairs, um, who is actually now chaired by your arch uh, not your Archbishop but your auxiliary Bishop Perry. Perry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the document is is that was uh, the pastoral letter that came out on racism. I think that was in 2018. It's called. That's right. Um, open wide our hearts, the enduring call to love. Um, that was came out. I, I think it was approved in November of that year. So tell us That's a little right. bit about that that document, and and it may as you cut right to the core and and tell us about the document. But you know, I think it's important to sort of define some basic terms and and sure. defining sort of what is racism for those who we hear this term all the time, and I think we all have sort of different takes on it. That's true, and and I mean that that point in and of itself becomes really interesting when uh, people are, are really seeking, particularly right now, to figure out what racism is um, on, a, on sort of a technical level. I think instinctually right. we all have some sort of an idea of what it is. Um, but, you know, definitions, as you say, are really, really important. And again, you know, once people start delving into the topic, they'll find definitions that are different depending on who the interpreter is. So there's a sociological definition, and then you know there are are other definitions that are that are more pastoral. And the bishop's definition is is fairly simple. And again, you can find it in the pastoral letter on racism. Open wide your heart, or I'm sorry, open wide our hearts. But it is. Um, defined as when either consciously or unconsciously a person holds that his or own his or her own ethnicity is superior to another and then judges another person or their races or ethnicities as inferior or un, unworthy of the same regard um, as theirs. So that's the bishop's definition. And again, people... So far, one of the critiques of the letter is that, you know, it's missing a sociological definition. And a lot of times people will apply the racial prejudice plus power equals Mm -hmm. racism Mm -hmm. definition to the equation. Um, But I I really have gleaned from the bishops um, and... And from their conversations that they're really interested, and particularly my committee is interested in being pastors um, because, you know, quoting one of them, you know, the last thing the world needs is another um, sociological take on, on the situation. They really want to bring a pastoral um, mm-hmm. teaching through this letter. What what do you say, or what what is our response to people? Um, and I, I I hear this a lot that um, you know I'd be candid. I mean, a lot of white people who say, "Hey, look, you know, I'm not a racist. I have nothing to do with this. I didn't. I, it's not in my home. Um, it's nobody that in my immediate surroundings." So what am what am I to do in this situation? Because I feel. I feel bad that, um, you know, if somebody else doesn't f- feel like they're being treated correctly, but I'm not doing it. So what do you want me to do about it? I, I-, I hear that a lot when I'm talking to other people about this topic. Sure. I mean, you know, the first analysis would would be in prayer, you know, and that person really would have to take that to the Lord and and really discern with the Lord whether or not that's completely true. 
you know, it, it's not my job um, in any sense, you know, and, and I, I think I'm speaking more personally, not in terms of mm-hmm. like my actual clock in and out job, but it's, it's not my role as a human being to judge what's in another person's heart, you know, sure. but you know, if you're, if you're walking along with somebody um, who has that take, you know, I, I think in that moment, and I have been in that moment where I kind of just have to turn personal and say something to the effect of, you know, there's been a lot of things in my past that I thought I had absolutely nothing to do with. And, um, they were major issues that the world was trying to tackle. And, you know, here are some ways where I realized that I really do have a part, have contributed, have, you know, fill in the blank. So, you know, and, and, and here's the thing, I think it's irresponsible and untrue to say that just because you wear a certain skin color that you're a racist. I, I, I just, that, that, that does not speak of the Lord's truth. Um, but again, a person has to, to take a serious look at their actions and, and who's, who's around them. And again, you know, the other thing is that, that just by being around people of color does not make you absolved from the analysis. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people want to say, well, you know, I have a, a black whatever, fill in the blank, you know, person of color in my family or my best friend is, you know, and proximity to people of color doesn't make you an expert. And it certainly doesn't make you um, outside of this analysis. Like we all have to go through the analysis and ask ourselves, you know, it may not be overtly racist behavior, but it could be um, pejorative behavior that affects how you interact with your brothers and sisters in the mm-hmm. Lord. You know, for example, I always ask people, you know, do you or do you not have people of color that are your friends? They're like, oh, yeah, 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 you know, this person at work, or, you know, if they're a little bit younger, like, yeah, my high school friends, or, you know, I got these buddies from college. And I said, and, and I usually say, I'm not talking about any particular Mm -hmm. conversation, but I usually say these people can be defined as friends if you can call them right now and it wouldn't be awkward, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, and and it usually takes people back because it takes people back, I should say, because, you know, they think to themselves, you know, you're right. Like these aren't close relations. Um, and why, you know, and so, you know, the badge of honor is not just having a person of color that you can call your friend, but it is an access point into understanding the experience. And, and that's a first step, you know, and I've, I've also, you know, on that end, um, had interesting conversations with, uh, one in particular bishop who asked people in his diocese to just have a conversation with a person of color that you normally wouldn't talk to. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting. There was a story about a guy who just started talking to his FedEx delivery person and how transformational that conversation yeah. was. Yeah. You know, and so I, I think that in a lot of situations, if you ask people of color what their experiences are day to day, you know, there's a lot of invisibility being experienced by people of color. And even that, you know, you may not be overtly doing anything to anybody. To but be if aware you're of not, Right. Yeah, and if you're not looking people in the eye and, and you know, you're, you don't know people's names, you pass on the street every single day, um, you got to ask yourself, you know, why am I not engaging in this particular population um, gifts, experiences, existence on the planet? We only have about a minute or so left, and this is a fascinating sure. topic. And I was—I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> that sure. you can just kind of—you could talk about this for a long time. There's a lot here. Um, I want to mention too for people um, how to access uh, the document, and and there is a yeah. study guide, and I think yep. that might be helpful. Talk yep. a little bit about how to access, and a little bit about the study guide. Sure, it's very very simple. You go to usccb.org/racism. And we've got our page loaded up with all sorts of resources. Uh, On the top of the page, you'll find the most recent statement by uh, the Anti-Racism Committee and several other bishops. And then in terms of the study guide, it's a very robust 
guide for Catholics to figure out how to interact with these issues through a mm-hmm. Catholic lens. You'll find all sorts of definitions and interpretations from all sorts of people who don't have a Judeo-Catholic lens, and it's very, very important that the people of God have that, and the study guide walks you slowly through how to um, make the lessons of the study guide your own. Daniel, thanks so much for taking some time this morning. I I, I knew this was going to happen. We could have we can <laughs> we we uh, to say we scratched the the surface is probably an exaggeration. Absolutely. So perhaps we'll uh, do this again sometime. Thank you for your work and to. um slash racism is how you access the document. Okay. Daniel, thanks so much. Thank you. Great. Have a Take great care. day. God bless. Thank you. God bless you, too. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference. Don't go away. We'll be right back. We're going to talk to a professor from Notre Dame, Dan Philpott, who is going to talk a little bit about uh, the president's executive order on uh, to advance international religious freedom. Don't go away. We'll be right back. nation in our world, people of all faiths have recently been joining fervently in all kinds of prayer. They have found that coming together in prayer is a source of comfort and strength. In this spirit of unity, the Archdiocese of Chicago has introduced a call to prayer, a telephone line dedicated to prayer. If you would like to join with another person in prayer, call 312-741-3388. This line is staffed from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. daily with parishioners from across the Archdiocese of Chicago. These volunteers are here to listen to you, offer support, and pray with you. A call to prayer includes a 24-hour voicemail and email options as well. Experience this wonderful opportunity to join with people just like you who trust in the power of prayer. That phone number again is 312-741-3388. Let's pray together today. We invite you to watch Catholic Chicago this weekend. Featuring a conversation with Cardinal Blaise Supich and video highlights from across the Archdiocese. Here's host Todd Williamson. We'll talk with Cardinal Blaise Supich about the outreach efforts underway by the Catholic Church to help people in need during the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll show you how online masses have become a common way of worship, and we'll give you a sampling of how teachers and students in Catholic schools are being creative and productive during the health crisis. Watch Catholic Chicago Friday at 7 p.m. on Chicago Loop Cable, Channel 25, and Sunday afternoon at 3 on the Comcast Network, Channel 100. everybody. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference of Illinois, and thanks for listening to our program here this morning. We are very fortunate to be joined. Um, Our next guest is a professor uh, just to the east of us at this school called Notre Dame. I think it's been, uh, people have heard of it before. He's a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame, and he is uh, an expert on, he specializes in religious, uh, religion and global politics. Politics. I have tongue tie here this morning, Professor uh, Dan Philpot. Am I pronounce your name correctly, sir? Yes, uh, you 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 are, and great to be with you this morning. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking some time. So, um, I really am interested in this topic, um, the topic of international religious freedom, because I think it's one that does not get enough attention in the media at all. And I think every chance I get to talk about this, I do. Um, I I, I want to talk maybe about the specifics, but then maybe I'll start with the general first. So the president put out this um, executive order to advance international religious freedom. I I guess what's let's just start with um, what's the aim of it? What's the purpose of what was the president trying to accomplish? Sure. Yeah, great question. Well, um, 
I think to understand it, go back uh, a few years mm-hmm. to 1998 when Congress actually uh, established a, a foreign policy of promoting religious freedom mandated by law through the International Religious Freedom Act. It gave us an ambassador for religious freedom, um, an office in the State Department, and, and an independent commission. Mm. And so we've had a religious freedom uh, policy in place all these years, but... And I think it's, you know, done some real good. I, I'm a fan of it, but it also has had mixed results and, you know, uh, shortcomings as well. Hmm. But I think what um, the Trump administration is trying to do here is to strengthen that policy and to do that in real concrete ways to really uh, give it some teeth that it uh, can, frankly, kind of need it. Well, um, why does it need more teeth? Well, um, <clears throat> You know, again, the, the policy has done some good things. Mm-hmm. Uh, annual reports have brought attention to religious freedom. It sort of put it on the map, placed it in the discourse, uh, and so forth. A hard question to answer, though, is, is any country actually more religiously free yeah. today in the world because of the policy? It's gonna... hard to answer yes to that. The world as a whole is not more religiously free. It's gotten worse in the last 5, 10, 20 years. And so... Um, hmm. Uh, the policy, you know, we need to do more. We need to do more that actually kind of engages countries and uh, promotes it on the ground. And I think that's what uh, the executive order is trying to do. That's interesting. I, I you know, it bothers me that um, the level of understanding of what is going on right now in China, and I hope I'm saying this correctly, with the Uy- is it Uyghurs? There's a Muslim minority who are basically being held in captivity because of because of their religion. Um, And that's going on in a lot of other places. And I I think, you know, I don't I I think it's good to maybe if you could just outline a little bit about some of these instances throughout the world where these uh, violations of, of basic human decency are going on. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you start started with the Uyghur Muslims in China. You've got one to two million in concentration camps. You've got um, to go down to Burma. You've got the Rohingya Muslims. Um, right. Hundreds of thousands have been uh, exiled and expelled from the country, are living in, as refugees in Bangladesh. You've got a kind of crackdown on religious freedom in China in general. Um, uh, you know, only the latest thing is that when churches come back from the pandemic, they have to they're they're required to quote preach patriotism um, in China. Yes, that's right. Many other things. Churches have been destroyed. Um, uh, pastors have been put in jail. Um, there's been a real crackdown in the last five years or so. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, like some of those examples yeah. you cited are Muslim. Yes, exactly. You know, it's. it's um, I've, I've done a lot of work on tracking uh, persecution of Christians, but the persecution of Muslims, um, both at the hands of non- non-Muslims, yeah. and sometimes also at the hands of other Muslims, yeah. um, is very. And when you add it all up, it, it is very, very. Uh, formidable. Yeah, that's that's uh, it, it is interesting that this this I know it's been written about. I get that. And from time to time, we'll read about it in, in publications like The Wall Street Journal or maybe The New York Times. But it hasn't seeped into the into the main culture really at all. And I and I fear that there's a, a large uh, amount of ignorance about what's what's happening to people. And and I know there's a lot of controversy in the United States about you know religious freedom and things like that, and we've been through Supreme yes. Court cases, and that's yeah. But that's that's different than than what's going on internationally. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there may be a qualitative um, similarity, but there's a big difference between you know being tortured and having your churches right. uh, burned right. on one hand, and then you know having to. Um, and and I, I do think the cases domestically are serious, where institutions are facing fines and, and that sort of thing. Um, um, you know, which was true uh, not so long ago, but yeah, you're, you're, there's a quantitatively, there is a real difference. Absolutely. What? Um, so, I, I, you know, can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of um, how a country like the United States, that through this executive order, that I think you you said provides a, a little bit more teeth uh, to what the administration can do? How do we combat? Um, how do we advance religious freedom when, when at the end of the day, there's there is kind of a limit to what we can do in a country like China, or yeah. uh, you know, I mean, it, it is hard to move them. I mean, we can't move them on trade policy, you know, <laughs> and, <Right>. and, and <laughs> something so nebulous as 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 religious freedoms it has to be even a steeper climb. Yeah, no, I think that's right, and you know, um, I think one thing we've learned over twenty years is the the sort of high level concentra- uh, confrontation, either 
you know, expecting it to be linked to trade policy or even sending the ambassador around to lecture countries and so forth really hasn't worked. And I think what's much better is to have um, programs um, through uh, f- foreign aid, through our diplomats, right. through, um, you know, uh, tra- trainings and engagement to try to um, kind of g- get the idea of religious freedom out there and try to engage countries, convince them that uh, religion doesn't have to be a threat, that it can actually be a, a positive um, mm-hmm. a contributor to their societies. Um, I think one of the very best things, uh, again, the, the Trump administration has done positively is to have what is called a ministerial on religious freedom, which is a summer, started two summers ago, but it's like a huge conference of sorts that brought together 900 Hmm. religious, civil society, and foreign ministry leaders from all around the world, all religions, and really built kind of networks of civil Mm -hmm. society, almost a kind of global network of people committed to religious freedom, Hmm. and get people on the ground in these countries who are committed to religious freedom, who can be the agents of change and support them. I think that, that's one of the things I think uh, we really learned from 20 years. That I think that's a much better um, – that mode of engagement is much better than um, – I just think it's unrealistic to accept President Trump to walk in and tell sure. you know, Xi Jinping, you know, Anything. get religious freedom or we're pulling your trade. Or, you know, right. He's already got enough of a confrontation over trade, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think what you're saying is sort of a seeping – uh, in of the culture, yeah. kind of a bottom-up approach as opposed to a top-down approach, over time might yield better results. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, I think of Interesting. it as yeast and bread, like something that yeah. kind of seeps through and makes it grow and uh, yeah. plants seeds. That, that kind of metaphor, I think, captures it better. We've we've had some tough years with um, setbacks on religious freedom internationally. Professor, are you an optimist or a pessimist as we go forward? <laughs> well, I think maybe theological hope is the best thing to have. Okay. <laughs> um, things have gotten worse in the last few years um, for the religious freedom picture. You know, we talked about China, yep. uh, Burma, but they even look at somewhere like Nigeria. I was going to say Africa. hundred Christians have been killed so far this year. How many? Not very well known, but it's just a horrible situation. How many Christians? I'm sorry. Several hundred. Several like, hundred. Maybe four to five hundred. Is that um, the resurgence of Boko Haram, or is those other group? Are there other groups? No, there's Boko Haram, but there's also a group known as the Fulani Herdsmen. Okay. And um, so it's in part in part an agricultural economic conflict, but it has also a strong religious dimension to it. Yeah. And um, but it's really uh, so. But nevertheless, um, I think it's very important to to engage and to have have an effective policy, to grow an effective policy, to to build networks. Um, you know, you can see uh, just look historically whether it's the, the civil rights movement or the global movement to end slavery or what have you, that um, if you stay with it in, in, in the long run um, and build up enough of a kind of constituency and network around the world of like-minded people, um, yeah, yeah, we have to believe that change is possible. Yeah, and, and, and like you said, I, it, these things take time, um, and yes. it looks like, at least in the United States, I think what you're saying is, in '98, we passed the law, so now we have an office, and I—that's it, it, the one that 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 senator, the former senator Brownback heads, correct? Is that that the office you're referring to? Yeah, well, he is the current ambassador right. at large. That's right. right, and he is a very, very good one, very effective one. And so, kind of, yeah. so that we have that law, and now perhaps this executive order that you indicated perhaps uh, provides a little bit more teeth, and 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 maybe we can advance a little bit there, and and like you said. I think we have theological hope, um, albeit we're up against some some strong forces. But you know, uh, don't estimate, don't underestimate that uh, theory that you outlined earlier about you know this seeping into the culture and spreading, and and then hopefully in time you'll see that take root and and some real change will occur. Yes, I think that's right. And the executive order, you know, requires ambassadors on the ground and violator countries to develop a plan for promoting religious Good. freedom. It provides funding through foreign aid. It uh, mandates training in religious freedom for all civil service employees in the State Department. If anything, it just helps the U.S. government employees and diplomats themselves yep. to put this on their radar, sure. create the awareness. And um, you know that's a major uh, obstacle to be overcome there as well, is just the kind of uh, secular thinking among people in our own government. I think you're right. I think you're right. Professor, thanks for taking some time this morning. Very interesting, um, and best of luck with your work. Continue on um, writing and, and studying this topic, because it's 
it's one that I think is very important. Um, it, it's important for the world. Uh, and and it's uh, so best of luck to you in, in your work. Thank you. God thank, bless. Thank, thank you. you for your attention to the topic. Yeah, great. Love to do it. Um, thanks for, uh, for joining us. Uh, this is Bob Gilligan. Don't go away. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with Bishop Hicks. He is the Vicar General. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, what we've been doing to reopen churches and what the plan is ahead. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Teamwork. It's a word that inspires individuals and groups of people to achieve important goals. And in recent weeks, teamwork has been essential to our food and nutrition services at Catholic Charities. Careful allocation of food supplies has allowed all nine of our food pantries to serve twice the number of guests they usually see. A detailed coordination of staff and resources has ensured that our WIC centers remain open for families with children under five years old. Despite social distancing, our volunteers and restaurant partners have continued to make to-go meals possible for the hungry and the homeless who come to 721 North LaSalle and our suburban locations. And our creative employees have worked with food vendors and neighbors to make sure homebound seniors and the disabled still have meals delivered to them. Our team members recognize how serious food insecurity can be. Please join us in our mission. Visit www.catholiccharities.net. Henry Ford once said, a business that makes nothing but money is a poor business. At Catholic Charities, we are deeply grateful to our corporate partners who agree with Henry Ford. Some of our corporate partners make a financial commitment each year to the work of Catholic Charities. Other partners donate or offer reduced prices on goods and services that help our clients find stability in their lives. Still other corporate leaders gather their employees and regularly volunteer at our food pantries and our suppers for the homeless. For over a century, support from businesses large and small has been vital to our efforts to strengthen the lives of individuals and communities, one person, one family at a time. If you'd like to join us in our mission, please call 312-948-6864. That's 312-948-6864. Thank you. listening to Catholic Chicago on WNDZ 750 AM. Every Monday through Friday from 8 AM to 9 AM, the Archdiocese of Chicago presents programming about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Thanks for letting us be part of your morning. Now again, Catholic Chicago. Welcome back, everybody. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference of Illinois, and uh, thanks for listening here this morning on this beautiful Monday morning here in Chicago. Um, with us, we're going to talk about uh, something I think we're all very concerned about, um, and it is the reopening or the continuing uh, reopening of the churches in the Archdiocese of Chicago. And with us, we have on the phone uh, Bishop Hicks, who has been largely uh, involved and responsible for the plan to reopen. Bishop Hicks, you with us. Yes, good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. Good to talk to you. Um, so I, I was thinking, like, I bet you never in a million years did you think when you were going to seminary and becoming a priest, did you think you would be in charge of or uh, have a key role in uh, reopening churches, huh? No, you know, I've, I've learned to believe in God's providence even more. You yeah. never know <laughs> what life is going to uh, give. Yeah. And, uh, Who'd have thought? Our, our responsibility is to respond. Exactly, exactly. So um, we're, tell us a little bit about where we are in the planning process, because I do get questions about it. I think it does sort of depend on your individual parish, but in the archdiocese in general, um, the plan is underway, and, and, and churches are either open or will be reopened pretty soon. 
correct. We put together a very robust uh, plan to reopen our parishes that uh, made sure when they do get reopened that people have access to public worship and to the sacraments, which they should have, and it's um, and we're excited about that. So we're, we're happy that it's going towards the reopening. And at the same time, the, the plans include every measure that we can think of so that uh, people remain safe and uh, and that we're looking for ways that we're, we're staying healthy, that we're not spreading the virus. So it's uh, the, the plan on a very basic level is saying that uh, each parish should have a, a pastor and, and a team of people who participate in some training first. So there's some training of saying, how do you reopen our churches safely for everyone? And uh, that training included um, uh, a webinar that they needed to participate in, mm-hmm. and then forming a team and getting teams of, of greeters and, and cleaners and people who are going to be organized at the parish level to make sure that things like uh, social distancing and, and sanitizing afterwards are going through and some guidelines also. So that was the training. And once parishes went through training, um, they get their teams together and they put together their own plan based on our guidelines for their parish. Those plans are submitted to a a group of us here at the Archdiocese for this um, kind of a task force looking at all the issues around COVID-19. It's presented to us and then we then certify the the parishes for reopening, saying, "Yeah, you, you look like you've got your plan together. You look like you're following the guidelines, and you're you're ready to go." The further certification has uh, a couple of phases, though. Um, so you, you could be certified first for phase one, which is uh, it's a very small and slow opening. First phase one says that you can have up to ten people for a funeral for a wedding, for reconciliation, um, and then it's, uh, it, goes, it goes to phase 1A, which is then a reopening for private prayer and devotion like um, Eucharistic adoration, rosary, etc. So phase 1, 1A, and then after they've demonstrated that they've done at least uh, three of those, that they've had a, a small funeral or mm-hmm. a small baptism or a small wedding, and they've done three of those, they're small reopening for private prayer. They can then apply for phase two, which is the reopening for, for mass, for weekend masses, Sunday masses, and then daily masses also. And um, for those masses that they, um, they can use a, a kind of a per capita seating, that it's not limited to just 10 people, but say you can go up to between 15 and 20 percent. So if your if your church fits a thousand people, mm-hmm. you you, can, you might have up to 150 people, 200 people at one particular service, following all the guidelines. So that would be phase two. Bob, I'd just like to share some numbers with you, please. Um, with what does that look like? As of Friday, here in the Archdiocese of Chicago, with our you know 300 and some parishes, 277 of them have been certified for Phase One, uh, 254 for Phase One A, and then 162 were certified for Phase Two of the reopening plan. So it's um, every parish is different, and, and yeah. we, we've told people that. Go at your own pace. Yep. If, if you can get the volunteers and the people and they're ready to go, and you're, some people had their plans <laughs> literally done kind of six hours after our <laughs> webinar. They had everything going, and they, yeah. they were anxious. And they're doing great. Yeah. And others, it takes a little bit more time to, to convince people and to say this is something we should be doing. So people are going at their own pace, and we're helping them along the way. 
I have to say, so uh, our parish, um, we went yesterday, uh, and we were at the f- max of fifty uh, sure. c- uh, place in the in the in the org chart or the the progression, and um, I have to say, there was a couple things that I think uh, you know, just personally noting that it was extremely well organized. Um, I mean, to the point of like you really noticed it. Uh, it, it was a little awkward. We had a reservation system, so it was kind of like uh, right. you know, checking in for my table of three you know, it was my wife my son and I so it, it, it's just it's a different experience I think people need to know that it's not going to be the experience that you've had your entire life that you recall back on March 6th when we were last whenever we were last at church it is different um, but right. you know I, I guess you know my neighbor we were talking about it yesterday and they said how did it go and I said well a it, I think the thing impression was me is extremely well organized it is clear that um, it, it, there's an abundance of cost uh, right. in, in everything we do. For example, before uh, before receiving the Eucharist, before communion, they went and sprayed our hands a second time. You know, we got sprayed when we walked in, we got sprayed a second time. My hands have never been so clean. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a different experience. You know, it enables you to receive the Eucharist. So yeah. uh, we're ahead of the game. Um, but in, in the windows were open. There was clear ventilation. You know, it was just a, a very uh, different experience. I think it's going to take a little getting used to. And I, I think w- now next week we'll go up back up to the, the percentage capacity. So we'll have a lot more people there. And that will feel different. And I think that will be better. Um the no singing, yeah, you know, it's a little awkward, but I think you get used to it. So it's, it's, I think people just need to know it's, it's not going to be the same thing you're used to. But on the other hand, um, I, I think it's a step in the right direction because I'll just speak personally, um, watching it on TV or on the laptop is, I think I've, I think we've maxed on that. Um, but for some people, I think they're going to have to keep doing that for a little while longer. So it was an interesting experience. I'll say that. No, no, that's right. And you're pointing to, you know, every parish has to do it to their own pace, but we do want people, we're we're using an abundance of caution, yes. but we want people to return to the Eucharist, and we want to provide that. So it's, uh, we are not only being cautious with uh, the guidelines and all the protocols, but um, we also want to create environments that people feel safe returning. Yes, it was there's, safe. There's, there, yeah, there's some people who will, People yep. just say, you know, I, I'm not going out of my house, and, and I, I can't go. But to, to return to the Eucharist, th- this is this is the heart of who we are as church, and um, and so providing these sort of things and saying we are taking it seriously, and we're looking to the you know to the best of our ability yeah. to it, make it a safe experience. It accomplishes those two things. It it is clear, you know, my, my perception is, and I'm not saying this. I'm just this was my. Per- it is extremely safe. I mean, there's people with masks. I said you have to spray your hand. I, there was no singing. Um, it, it is clear that you are in the safest environment as you possibly could. I would compare it to being in your own home. Um, probably more safe uh, than being in your home. Um, and then secondly, you know, we were able to read the Eucharist. So I, you know, like I said, you know, said, I think we're ahead of the game. Uh, and then, you know, that sense of community, it was there a little bit, you know, um, people did sort of, you know, they didn't mingle as long as they would after a normal mass, but it was good to see people again and that you haven't seen in quite a while. So it was, it was a positive experience and it was shorter too. It was, it was not probably as long as, as a normal mass would be, but that's because of the singing and, and it's just cognizant of what's going on around around you um you know one of the things that i, I we got two minutes left is that uh, i i think it's probably important to keep keep in mind is it was extremely well organized signage and everything but you know this costs money to do this this is an extra cost and burden on the parishes right that's that's correct yeah that's right yeah and i think you know i think it's a chance to keep this in mind that um because we haven't been at at, at masses frequently to please you know continue giving um through the ways, through your parish, a lot of them have the Give Central program, or um, so any contributions that could be made to help offset some of those increasing costs and the costs that uh, have not been able to have been collected would would deeply be appreciated. Um, and any uh, feedback you've been hearing briefly about it so far? Uh, I, are people satisfied? Do, do, do you think, or what, what's the general you, you perception know, you get? Here, here's the thing throughout throughout the whole. Uh, Throughout this whole process, we, we receive constant feedback, and it's going to be a, a bit of a mix. Yep. For, for some people, it's, it's we're going way too slow. For some people, way too fast. But, but overall, parishes have been very cooperative in terms of 
following the guidelines and they want to do the right thing. And the majority have just been grateful, saying, thank you for giving us a plan. Mm-hmm. Thank you for giving us something that we can follow and do this together and, and, and be safe and now bring the sacraments and the Eucharist together. So overall, it's been it's not only been um, well-received overall, but it's um, it's been a collaborative eff- effort. Also, it's um, it's been good working with the different the different personnel and the different authorities and uh, the different groups, and also working with the different bishops in in the state of Illinois. I know Cardinal Supic and the other bishops are regularly on conference calls saying, "How are we doing this? How are we?" doing things together. Each diocese is a bit different with some mm-hmm. of the guidelines based on the density of population and, you know, the diversity. And, you know, each diocese is a bit different. But there's, there's just been a, a good sense of we want to do this, we want to do it right, and um, a good sense of collaboration. I think we are, and, and I think most people do appreciate, like you said, there being a plan and we're moving forward. That's clear. Uh, yeah. We've we've kind of come out of the the where we were, and now at least we're able to go back, and then, you know, hopefully, God willing, as we move on, and we'll be able to expand that more and more, and pray that there's a vaccine or treatment, and we can just go back to the way it used to be. That'd be nice, but uh, this is the situation we have to deal with, and we have to be safe, and I think we're doing that, and we're able to just receive the Eucharist, so we're, we're doing, we're at least we're on the right track. Amen. And let's move forward. It's uh, this this holy hunger that we all have yeah. for for the Lord for just as celebrating Corpus Christi yesterday, and it's uh, it, it's it's a good thing it, to be back at the Eucharist and is. moving forward. I agree. It is good, Bishop Hicks. Thanks for your work on this. I know, like I said, uh, not one of the things that, that you probably uh, thought you would be doing, but like you said, yeah, who knows? A job description as 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 provided, right? Who who knows what it's going to be next. That, that's right. All we do is uh, we surrender and we trust. Exactly. We forward with the Lord. Yeah. Thanks right. for your great work on this, and thanks for the developing a plan and, and all the good work you've done with this. Thanks so much. Uh, God bless you and God bless all. God Thank bless. You. Thanks. Take, take care. This is Bob Gilligan. Don't go away. We'll be right back. We're going to come back with a representative from the Diocese of Joliet talking about uh, a program they had underway over the weekend um, on racial justice. We'll be right back. nothing like having a friend to talk to when things are not going well. And in these challenging days, everyone has had moments when they are discouraged, sad, or worried. Catholic Charities wants you to know that we are here. If you or someone you know would like to share your concerns with a professional, call 312-948-6951 anytime, day or night, and you will be connected with an experienced counselor who will listen without judgment and offer compassionate, confidential advice that you can trust. That phone number again is 312-948-6951. Before, during, and after COVID-19, Catholic Charities is here for you. Throughout this pandemic, Catholic Charities continues to develop the most effective ways possible to respond to the needs of our clients and communities. In the past month, our call center has received 250 calls a day for emergency services. More than 450 seniors are being visited by home care aides who help them with housekeeping, groceries, and personal care. Mental health services are being provided to more than 600 people via phone and video. Our friendly, knowledgeable staff is working nonstop, so we are always ready for whoever might reach out to us next. If we can be of assistance to you, email us at gethelpcatholiccharities.net or call 312-655-7700. That's gethelpcatholiccharities.net. Before, during, and after COVID-19, Catholic Charities is here for you. Welcome back, everybody. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference, and thanks for listening to our program here this morning. Um, on the line, we have with us Pete Newburn. Pete is um, an ecumenical officer with the Diocese of Joliet, and they had a very interesting program this past Saturday. It was a virtual ecumenical prayer rally for racial justice, and here to talk about it is Pete Newburn. Pete, you with us? 
Yes, good morning, Bob. Good, good morning. To be with you, and good morning to all the listeners. Yeah, good morning, Pete. So it was kind of an interesting program. Um, it was a virtual rally for uh, racial justice, and so it was done sort of what over the internet and um it, i just looked at the uh, uh the lineup it's quite an ambitious lineup that you did and i don't know how long it took you when i when i saw this i thought geez this thing must have went all day but it only was like an hour and 40 minutes according to your program you have pretty much hour a virtual minutes, who's who here of of people so i i'd urge people to take a look at this it's on your website at www dioceseofjoliet.org. But why don't you tell us a little bit about um, what the uh, rally was and how it came about? Yeah, well, we from the moment of the original idea to the event was about 10 days. Wow. There and you go. So we, re- we really threw it together fast, and um, we just felt like as a diocese we needed to do something, and we wanted it to be broader than the Diocese of Joliet. So um, Bishop Pates, who is our apostolic administrator, we're waiting to get a new bishop, right. um, but he's serving us wonderfully in this interim period. And he's very passionate about this and really wanted to have an event that would have two purposes. One is to express solidarity with those who are suffering the injustice of racism. And secondly, and, and importantly, to really challenge and inspire the privileged white middle-class whites of our community to conversion, to reflection, and to action. And so that was our goal. Uh, we just wanted to have a mix of black and white, male and female, uh, Latina as well, presence. And, um, and also across denominations. So we had three local pastors from the Joliet area, two of which were African-American. We had the uh, Lutheran ELCA bishop from all of northern Illinois right. came to participate. Um, and uh, for our main speaker, we had Vincent Cornelius, who is a young African-American man who is uh, uh, was a lawyer and recently appointed as a circuit judge for Will County and um, a graduate of the University of St. Francis, which co-sponsored mm. the event, and he was an excellent speaker. It was a really great event. What were the main points that people were communicating over the over the rally? What, what were the salient points come out of it? Well, Bishop Tate's started it off by mentioning the date of 1619, when the first ship of slaves arrived from Africa to the United States. We have COVID-19 and we have 1619, the, the two kind of big issues that are going on right now, and um, just kind of put it in the context of how this is a time for us to reflect uh, Elizabeth Roman, who is our director of Hispanic and ethnic mm-hmm. ministries and really a national person, uh, she gave a very passionate uh, appeal in Spanish uh, to ask for justice, for equality, for an end to hate, that we're all children of God. She spoke as being a mother of two sons and the fear that she has experienced as the mother of a black or brown child that every mother goes through. And we cannot accept the discrimination or sin of racism. Do you have any idea, um, were, you, were you able to pull off or, or discern who all participated in the rally? Is it is it possible to tell that? Well, as of last night, I noticed we had 583 viewers okay. um, who had seen the program. I imagine that will grow. Again, uh, Diocese of Joliet, um, uh, on YouTube, you'll be able to scroll down and find this ecumenical rally for racial justice if you'd like to view it. Um, I, I think in, our original plan was to have a, 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 an in-person gathering, yeah. and and in some ways I think the plan to go virtual allowed more people to participate, which was wonderful. Yeah, I, I, I would wonder if you would have been able to get 600 people to attend an event 
like this. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe I, I, it, these numbers are, are all over the place right now, but it's it's kind of hard in a 10 days notice to be able to get 600 people to come to such an event. I don't know. Maybe you could have, but uh, I think that's pretty impressive because you just said that this was on Saturday and that's how many views you've had so far. And that number mm-hmm. will probably go up from 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 here, I would think. Um so do you, what was the outcome? So the outcome of it was, uh, what, do you think you will do something like this again? Was there any kind of path forward uh, of what to, what to do? Um, I, I don't know if you were able to catch the very first segment that we had on the program this morning, but we, I, I interviewed did. Danielle Brown from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and the Bishops Conference has a document um, that was put out in 2018, and it has a study guide. And I'm just wondering if that was referenced, or do you think that would be useful at all? Yeah, when that came out, our office looked at it, and um, we've had some some seminars on it. But okay. now more than ever, people are really uh, looking at this issue. And I, I, I think, I hope, doing a lot of self-reflection. Mm-hmm. I know I have been doing a lot of personal reflection and soul-searching, um, you know, this was one of many opportunities to listen and learn, to be challenged, to pray, and to really reflect. For me, as a comfortable, privileged, middle-class white person, um, how am I involved in, in this societal sin? And personally, I, it's an opportunity for me to reflect on my own attitudes about racism. And we hope that this was a small way of pushing this for- issue forward and putting it in a context of the teachings of the Church and the invitation for Christian unity and for human unity that every person is created in the image and likeness of God and worthy of all dignity. One of the things I've noticed in terms of the lineup of the speakers you've had is it, this is not a Catholic event. It's an ecumenical event, or uh, is many other uh, faiths were represented. Um, I noticed you had the pastor of the of Judson Church in Joliet, and, and you mentioned already the gentleman, Vince Cornelius, who is a, who is a judge, and I think he's the president of the Illinois State Bar Association now. Um, is there any—the uh, evangelical um, Lutheran Church was represented— was there any uh, things that you gleaned from their take on this that are, are slightly different from ours, or is it basically the, the, the same kind of uh, themes throughout? Well, there was a real sense of collaboration and unity in pulling this mm-hmm. event together, which was a real blessing. I, I, as an ecumenical officer for our diocese, I'm all about promoting opportunities for unity across denominational lines, and especially across racial lines. Um, you know, I, I think the different speakers all spoke very passionately, but also very personally. And one thing that really struck me was was the message from Vincent Cornelius, the mm-hmm. circuit court judge. He had five S words uh, that he invited us to take specific actions. See, speak, stand, stay, and study. Hmm. He said, and, and this is what really struck me. He said, see my color. I can't afford for you to be colorblind, you know, as a white person. And I've been guilty of saying that. Oh, I, you know, I'm colorblind. I don't notice the color. Well, that's really a false way to look at it. He said, see me. See both the beauty and the burdens of my color. And then he said, speak. Do not be silent. Demand with us for justice. And stand in solidarity. Stand when we're taken down as, we, as you stand when we score a touchdown, was one of his <laughs> lines. <laughs> and stay, continue to stand by our side. And then he invited us to study the history, study the journey, listen and learn. So those calls to action I thought were very uh, appropriate and challenging and an opportunity for all of us to reflect on. See, speak, stand, stay, and study. Did I get it right? That's right. Very good. The five S's. That's a, a, a good lesson from this. Pete, thanks uh, for taking some time to join us this morning. And once again, if why don't you give us the uh, uh, web address if people want to go on YouTube or the diocesan website to look at uh, what the uh, ecumenical uh, rally was this weekend. How do they, uh, how do they access that? Yeah, thanks, Bob. You can go to the Diocese of Joliet website, and on the front page, there's a link 
to the event, which is recorded, and you can go right now or anytime and uh, click on that and watch it. Or if you go to YouTube and just type in a search for Diocese of Joliet and scroll down, it's you'll w- see w- the event. Or www.dioceseofjoliet.org. We'll get you there. That's correct. Pete, thanks so much for yeah. taking some time this morning. Uh, congratulations on a successful rally. Thank you very much, Bob. Great to be with you. Thank you. you. And thanks for everybody for listening uh, and joining our program this morning. Um, Our rundown uh, with Daniel Brown and Pete Newberg, uh, Professor uh, Philpott, and uh, of course, uh, Bishop Hicks leading the way on reopening the churches. This is Bob Gilligan. We'll be back on the third Monday in the month of July. Wow. Uh, Have a good summer, everybody, or at least a good summer until July, because summer will still be going on in July.